Father, we first want to lift up to you those who are in Cambodia, the entire team over there. We ask that you would give them discerning hearts that those who desperately need you and wish to find you, that they would. That the words would be spoken, the gospel would be given, that you would enable Pastor Hung to really minister pointedly to the people that he sees. And as 700 to 1,000 people come through that little clinic, we ask that you would open up their hearts to the gospel and their minds, that they wouldn't be blinded by the enemy. And the same thing for Africa, Lord. As we go to Africa, we pray that you would renew the people there who are also in generational poverty, that we'd bring to them some sort of hope, that we'd be a blessing to them and not a curse in any way. And we ask, Lord, also for your blessing upon your word, that as it goes out, it would have its effect upon us, that we'd simply not be hearers of the word, but we'd be doers as well. In Jesus' name, amen. So we are going to finish up the book of Hebrews today. And imagine a man coming in with this gospel. He gives the gospel to a group of Jews, and these Jews readily receive the gospel. And they say, this is good. They understand the prophecy. They understand from where they had come from as far as the history of Israel is concerned. But then some other people come in the church and they say, you know, it's not supposed to be quite like that. You're supposed to go back to some of these sacrifices. You're supposed to go back to some of the circumcision. And all this is in the Old Testament. All this is covered in detail for every Jew. As they are growing up, they understand what it is to go to the temple. They understand what it is to offer a blood sacrifice. They understand who it is that is the high priest. They understand the history, the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. They understand Moses and Aaron and who they were. And those people of faith that came after them, whether Gideon or Barak or Deborah, all of those saints of old that trusted in God and God delivered them over and over. So they are completely familiar with the entire history of the Jews. And so these people who come in and say, we understand this, we know this, we need to stick to this rather than go the new way that has been brought to us in Jesus Christ, the new covenant. So the author of this book writes them and says, don't do this. And he goes back and he reviews. He tells them, don't abandon what you have been taught. And he lays it all out again. He says, remember the Israelites and how they rebelled in the wilderness? And right before that, there would be a big question. Who was Jesus really? Wasn't he a prophet? Well, yeah, we think he was a prophet. He was a good teacher, that's for sure. But was he God? And so he spends the first chapter and he says, Jesus is not an angel. They apparently, they were leading towards this idea of making Jesus into an angel rather than declaring him as God, as the scripture says. And it's reinforced by the fact that the father even calls Jesus God. He says, your throne, O God, will last forever and ever. And I think that's in verse eight of chapter one, as you go through there. So first he addresses for the Jews, who this Jesus is. Then he says, now remember the Israelites. Remember how they rebelled in the wilderness and they did not go into the promised land. They did not receive the gift of entering into their rest or their peace at that particular time. And then the Jew would have had a question, well, wait a second, what about the high priest? In the mind of the Jew, the high priest would have been higher up than in our country. The president is probably the highest up. They're supposed to be the president Congress and the judiciary, they're all equal under our constitution. Well, in Israel, it would have been the high priest was supreme. There was no one above the high priest. He was the one who was revered. He was the one that was the final arbiter. If something went through the Sanhedrin, 
and they wanted to appeal to the high priest, they could appeal to the high priest, and the high priest would make his ruling, and usually the Sanhedrin would go along with that because the high priest was called by God. According to Hebrews chapter 5, no man takes this honor upon himself. He must be called by God. And so they had had this question about the high priest. So this author of this book comes along and says, Jesus is the new high priest. He's not a high priest after the Levitical priesthood. He's a priest after the order of Melchizedek. And immediately they would have thought, Melchizedek, who was that? Abraham, Melchizedek. Abraham paid a tenth to Melchizedek. And surely Abraham was less than Melchizedek because Abraham paid a tithe to Melchizedek. So Melchizedek was elevated. So they would understand that this high priest, Melchizedek, Jesus was just like him. Oh, he's a high priest that's higher. So he's reminding him of all of this. And he would have gone on to say, well, what about the old covenant? The old covenant was something he brought up and he said it was passing away. It could never forgive the sins of the people. It was never meant to forgive the sins. It was only supposed to point out that we are all sinners and there's a constant need for a sacrifice. And so they would have said, okay, let's see, Jesus is God. There is this idea of the rebelling uh, Jews, the Israelites who are out there. We have this idea of the high priest and and then there's this old covenant well what about the tabernacle you know the tabernacle is revered and it stood until david wanted to build a temple and he wasn't able to do it but solomon was able to do it and then the temple became the place in which the jews would worship they said well what about that we need the temple and he kind of wipes that out he, he says no the temple that was here was only the tabernacle specifically was only an image of what was really in heaven and that's what it was used for it was only an image and so jesus the high priest melchizedek and offering a sacrifice which was supposed to happen in the temple or in the tabernacle, he went to heaven, to the true tabernacle of God, and offered his own blood. So they're making all these connections again. They're saying, okay, I get this. I get how Jesus is God. I get the Old Testament covenant and how the Israelites rebelled and the, and the tabernacle which was there and the blood sacrifice. And remember those who were faithful. He goes into chapter 11 and says, all these people were faithful. Remember them? So it's this call to remembrance. If you went to the book of Hebrews and you wanted to rename it, You might rename it something like the book of remembrance, remembering everything that happened so that you can transfer that to who Jesus is and what he has done. Because all of that was set up to let these people know God had a plan and this plan was fulfilled through Jesus. And he established that plan by one thing. And that was the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And if you go to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, it talks about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And when Paul describes that in chapter 15, it is thought by scholars that that was actually a song or a poem, so to speak, that they would recite, kind of like the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God the Father, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, who was born of a virgin. You know, all of those things. And we even sang the Creed today. That's what we believe here in the church. We believe in the Trinity. We believe in his death, burial, and resurrection. We believe that he will return one day. And when he returns, he will give us new bodies. We'll go up in the rapture. We'll be with him for seven years. And then we'll come back here, seven years according to earth time. Of course, God's time may be a little different. We could be up there for a millennia. We have no idea how that's going to transpire. But here on earth... It is going to be for seven years that the tribulation is going to take place. So that's how it's all going to unfold, so to speak. And this is what the people are being reminded of. And then just in, like I said, I believe Paul wrote this book. Now, some say, no, don't speculate on it. We don't know for sure. Well, it's all right. We do know that it was inspired by the Holy Spirit. There's no question about that. In chapter 12, he does say, run the race, fix your eyes on Jesus, let him be our example, endure all hardship as discipline, make sure you do not refuse him. And Jesus is coming along and treating us. He does the same thing for us that he did for the Jews back then. He says, come, come and believe. He says that he wants us as part of his kingdom. He wants us to be his quote-unquote bride, and that's a metaphorical term. He wants us to be very close to him. He wants to share his throne with us. He wants to give us eternal life. He wants to wipe away every tear. And that's the promise we have. If we trust in him, he will do this for us. He will give us a new body. 
He will wipe away every tear. We'll get a new heaven and a new earth. He goes on to say, the reason for this, the reason that you should trust in Christ and not refuse him is there is going to be an expectation of a judgment which is coming. Everything that we see here will be destroyed. And again, as I just stated, we'll go to the new heaven and the new earth after the great white throne judgment. So we have this expectation. And the expectation in the Old Testament was they walked up to the mountain, remember, and there was thunder and there was lightning and they were afraid. And they told Moses, do not let God talk to us anymore. You go talk to God and then you talk to us. And it's all changed in the book of Hebrews. It's like, enter the throne room boldly. All these angels in glorious apparel and appearance, they are there rooting us on, and Jesus is on the throne, and we can be happy and just go right up there, not like the mountain. So that's how this covenant has changed from the Old Testament covenant to the New Testament covenant. So we have all this theology. We have all this history that has taken place. Then he goes into this exhortation. Just the final closing of the letter. When we write a letter, we probably end it something, if it's a business letter, sincerely, you know, something business-wise, or you just write your name at the bottom and say, thank you. Or you might say, I love you so much, I miss you, I can't wait to see you, something like that. That's what you write, and that's just for the guys writing to the guys. You know, it may not be... Just kidding. It it can be spouses and friends and boyfriends and girlfriends, things like that. And and we may put a P.S. down at the bottom. And that's a common way to end a letter. That's how we do it. Well, back then, they would write their letters. Like, for instance, when Paul would write most of the New Testament books, he'd say, grace and peace unto you and from the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, he'd talk about the, the same thing in all the letters. And he would end it usually the same way with an extension of the grace of God. May he bless you. And there'd be some kind of benediction at the end. And at the end of this letter, that is apparent. It, it is in there. Now, this final exhortation begins like this, and it talks about loving, the dispensing of love to others. And he says, in this area, love, in this area, love, in this area, love. In Hebrews chapter 13, verse 1, it says, keep on loving each other as brothers. Now, what were they probably doing? Just the opposite, or maybe it was just an encouragement to keep on doing it. But chances are, in the church at that time, because of the personality of the Jews, they probably would have hated their enemies, you know. And even some people in the church, yeah, I'd die for you, but I don't like you very much, you know, type of thing, where he says, no, keep loving each other. In other words, stay away from the foolish and stupid arguments. Get in there and know what you're doing. Just previous to this, he said, keep your eyes on Jesus. Run the race. Do it with determination, forethought, and endurance. All of those things that we have talked about in the weeks past. But here he says, keep on loving each other as brothers. And this is where you get the word phileo. It's this brotherly love. In Romans 12, 10, it says, be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Honor one another above yourselves. So in other words, this goes along with Philippians 2. Consider others better than yourselves, not equal. Consider others equal to yourselves. Whatever you do for yourself, do for others. No, he says, go beyond that. Do more for somebody else than you would do for yourself. What do you mean? It means spend of your time and resources to bless others more than you would bless yourself. Well, that's not fair. I work hard for my money. Yes, you have, but God is trying to teach us this idea of sacrificing for ourselves for the benefit of others. Do you think you'll lose your reward if you do that? But we're after this instant satisfaction. Isn't that our society today? When do you want it? Only a few want it now. huh? No, we all want it now. Last night I took a drive down from Orange County, and I'm watching the Google Maps And it tells me I'm going to arrive home at 3 after 8. The whole time it's 3 after 8. And I'm thinking, I want to make it 2 after 8 or 1 after 8. You know, as I'm driving down the freeway and there's a lot of traffic, I'm just going, oh, I want to get there. I want to get there. It's a long, it's 1 hour and 38 minutes from where I was up in Orange County. And then uh, my granddaughter in the back, she goes, I'm hungry. I'm like, 
hungry. Okay, hungry. And as we go by In-N-Out Burger, she goes, I want In-N-Out Burger. Betty goes, that's not happening. And we just keep on driving. And, and we, we get a little farther and we get over by Las Coaches and I go, okay, Taco Bell. There goes my 803, you know? So I turn into Taco Bell, we get the stuff, we come out and I pull up to our house after that and it's 805. And I go, only two minutes to talk about. Forget about they forgot the rice, but we only two minutes, you know, it took two minutes. It's like, it was there the time, it was all good, it was wonderful and this idea of, of brotherly love and where was I going with that? I have no idea, so let's go on. First Thessalonians chapter four, verse nine. I lost my place. Now about brotherly love, we do not need to write you for you yourselves have been taught by God to love each other. And in fact, you do love all the brothers. So by the way, it was because I was to consider others better than myself. And I was considering my granddaughter better than myself. So I made sure I got her some food, that type of thing going on. Yet we urge you brothers to do so more and more. And so we are to offer sacrifices, not only to God, but to other people. Imagine if we did this. You know, I was talking to uh, Victor in the foyer before I came out, and we're talking about going to Houston and maybe going down to Mexico. And I said, just imagine, how many churches are there in the United States? There's, there's tens of thousands. You know, it doesn't seem like it, but there are tens of thousands of churches in the United States. Imagine if each one of them sent a crew to where we're going in Houston. How long would it take for the houses to be made ship shape? No time at all. And Victor said, wow, imagine if the churches did that. And that's what we're called to do. We're to consider others better than ourselves. Victor gets it. I understand it. I was taught it. It's like, let's do this thing. And if everybody understood to give more for the sake of others, then you give to yourself, the world would be a fantastic place. There'd be no want anywhere except for the corruption that is out there, and you have to be careful of that. And we, with those who are in the church, and it is not difficult to minister to those in the body, we are to practice this, just like the persecuted church at the time this book was written. They were persecuted, and we know that Paul was encouraging the churches at that time to set aside a sum of money every week's and keeping with their income so that they may give to the church in Jerusalem that was being persecuted. And they were blessed with that. They were blessed with the income that the others gave out of. And they gave out of sometimes their want and sometimes their their abundance. And it blessed others. So we are to consider others better than ourselves. And this is what keep on loving each other as brothers means. Secondly, we're to love everyone outside the church. The first one was those inside the church. This is the exhortation to love those outside the church. Do not forget to entertain strangers. For by doing so, some people have entertained angels without knowing it. Now, you may have heard some of the stories. I know that when I got saved, after I got saved, there would be these stories that would float around. Yeah, there was a person in a VW. They were somewhere up in Montana or Idaho. And this guy was hitchhiking and he was ruddy. He was red and he had freckles and everything. And he got in the car after these people picked him up. And they just started talking, having a good old time. And then this individual says, Jesus Christ is coming back soon and instantly disappears from the car. And they look back and they, where'd the guy go? And it would be this visitation of an angel. It's probably on Snopes somewhere. But this is a story that was floating around for years that would be out there. And so this idea of entertaining strangers, we're to be kind to strangers. Have you ever gone to a city where nobody looks at you? You're looking at them and they just look down and they keep on walking. Or you make that eye contact. Sometimes you make the eye contact and somebody smiles and it's nice. And, you know, Americans, if we go abroad, we're loud and we're friendly, and we make eye contact usually with people as a nation, but other nations are not so much. Other nations are more private. You don't look at them. You don't uh, call out their name. You're, You're not supposed to be loud, but God calls us to love them as well, no matter what religion, no matter what race, no matter who they are. We are supposed to love everybody Every stranger that we come across, and in doing so, we may have entertained an angel. 
How do you not know or how do you know if you have not entertained an angel? Somebody who just walks up to you and talks to you about something and you bless them in some way. It could have been an angel. And it was a test for you or it was a test for me when that takes place. If you look in scripture, this particular scripture says that an angel can materialize as a human. Now with that, is that some people say, ah, that's not possible. No, it is possible. Jesus, before he became incarnate, did he appear here as a human being? The answer is yes. In the Old Testament, it is believed Jesus is the one who appeared to Abraham and Manoah and Adam, walked with God in the cool of the, the evening in the garden. All of those things happened. Well, how did he do that? It's like, beam me up, Scotty. He just materialized. Well, now he has a body permanently. But an angel has been given, apparently, the same ability to materialize. So you, you don't want to walk around being all paranoid. Are you an angel? Are you an angel? You know, that type of thing. As I've said before, Patty's the only angel that I know. But these ideas that, that there would be angels out there that you might be entertaining, and especially if they give you the gospel or something like that, or they talk to you about encouragement and walking your walk with Christ, you don't know. And so we're supposed to love those outside. Now, if you bless an angel, do you think God will reward you for doing that? Most certainly he will. So what if you entertain a 100 strangers and only one's an angel? Well, I think it's going to be worth it when you get the reward back. And if it, one's not even an angel, if you just entertain the strangers, that's the essence of love is helping others. Well, what if they don't want to be loved? Well, you just you walk away. That's all you have to do. But this idea of blessing others, that's how we're supposed to fulfill this second verse of Hebrews chapter 13. Then third, he makes special mention. Remember those in prison as if you were their fellow prisoners and those who are mistreated as if you yourselves were suffering. Being in prison is one place where they cannot come to you. They cannot walk up to you. We have to go to them. Now, whether you actually physically go to somebody who is in prison or you write to them, because, you know, for some people going into prison, especially maximum security prison, it's kind of, uh, yeah, it's kind of scary. It's kind of nerve-wracking. You know, these guys are criminals. They're murderers. They're thieves. They're swindlers. I mean, the worst of society, and not all of them are the worst, but most of them are the worst of society. You go in there, and a lot of the guys, you know, sometimes these guys are really big. I'm, I'm not talking six foot. I'm talking six foot six and up. And when they're missing several teeth and they have tattoos all the way from their forehead down to their fingertips, and they say, how are you doing? You go, I'm fine. You know, yeah, I have this really high. These guys are just huge. And, you know, I've sat there in a church service inside the prison before, and, and it's, it's intimidating. Now, if you got in there and you did it on a regular basis, it wouldn't be so intimidating, I'm sure. But God tells us to go to them, to minister to them, however we can do it. And by the way, this isn't limited to those in a prison ministry. This is all of us. We can, all of us, we can write letters. We can send things. We can help people out. And God is pleased with such sacrifices. And we're to do it as if we were prisoners. If you were in a prison someplace, I remember uh, Patty and I were talking about this. Somebody that we knew that got arrested, they got one bologna sandwich with nothing on it once a day. That's what they got. Even now, the prisoners, even down here at the jail, uh, they ask you to put money on their bank, so to speak so they can eat because they get one meal a day. And what do the prisoners do? They usually take about $30 and they'll buy food to supplement the food that they don't get during the week. 
you know, so it, it's things like that. Now, if you only had a bologna sandwich with nothing on either side and that's what you got once a day, would you want a little more? Well, consider them that that's what they're getting or something like it. And God wants us to help them out. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 34 says, You sympathize with those in prison and joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property because you knew that you yourselves had a better and lasting possession. So it's this idea that we have something that is future. We, we employ ourselves in such a way that we can bless others and we sacrifice ourselves here in order to receive the reward later. To be an early or Christian in the early church, you might have been thrown into prison as Paul was often. At the end of this book, we'll see that Timothy was just released from prison. And they don't have the ability, like I said, to come to us. We must reach out to them. And number four, we are to love and honor the institution of marriage. Verse four says, marriage should be honored by all and the marriage bed kept pure for God will judge the adulterer and all the sexually immoral. And apparently what was taking place, and if you go to first Corinthians, you will see that this is actually, it's actually taking place in chapter five that a man had his father's wife, which was probably his stepmother, and he was sleeping with her. And they thought, that's great, freedom. We have freedom in Christ, right? And Paul says, no, that's not what you're supposed to do. And it ruins this idea of marriage. Ephesians chapter 5 talks about the marriage relationship, and you're seeing that husbands should love their wives and die for them, and wives must respect their husbands. And when you get to the end, he goes, I'm not even talking about marriage. I'm talking about Christ and the church. You go, what? What do you you mean? You just talked about husbands and wives. And he said, no, this is the relationship between Christ and the church. But use it in your marriage as well. This is how we're to conduct ourselves. So apparently there were these people that thought it was okay, like if it's a young man, to hit up on a married woman. Or if it was a young woman, to hit up on a married man. You're so handsome, you're so wise, you're so strong, and look how smart you are. And they would just go to this man, and they would try to seduce him, and, you know, it's just a bad thing. And so the author of this book says, honor marriage. In other words, stay away from married people. This exhortation seems to be given to the single mostly, but not just to the single No swingers, no people going out there just getting involved in extramarital relationships. Ixne, nada, nunca, never. Stay away. A little Spanish there that I gave to you. This idea that you stay away from that kind of relationship. Don't even entertain it. Just make sure if if you want to get married, find your own woman, find your own man, and get married. And leave it at that. And then you put up the bars of the city, so to speak. And you, you keep away all outside influences. So he's exhorting the church, love and honor the institution of marriage. And encourage those marriages who are out there. Because we know that God will judge the sexually immoral. And we want to make sure that we're not part of that. Now why does God constantly, I think I pointed this out last week, constantly point out Sexual immorality is being number one, except in one case that I gave you last week. It's because it's so prevalent and it is so damaging. It is so damaging to the children, especially. Not only to the psyche, the soul of the individual. You know, if there is a divorce, imagine, and I've used this illustration before, imagine gluing two pieces of notebook paper together and then trying to pull them apart. That's what you do in a marriage. It's not going to end pretty. You're you're ripping the soul, the fabric of those two individuals that have become one. You're ripping it apart. That's why God says, married to one person for life. And the person who commits adultery, that sin never leaves them. And adultery is considered if you divorce someone and marry somebody else as a believer. Even as an unbeliever, I think God will judge it as adultery as well. So one man, one woman there to agree on this for the rest of their lives. In in our day and age, you know that there would be many people that would say, but that's so limiting. Why Why can't, you know, just experiment a little bit. Go for a test drive, you know, just move in together for a while. There have been studies done on this. And the last time I gave a message on Hebrews chapter 13, it pointed out that the standards for an individual, what they have 
for somebody that they move in with are not as high as somebody they would marry. So what does that tell you? The person that moves in with somebody else, they're settling for second best. You're not settling for the best. Do you ever get married and and say to yourself, oh, well, I guess it's the best that's out there. If that's why you're getting married, don't get married. Don't settle. Just, you know, make sure that you have God's best for you. Now, you might not think it once you get married. I don't know if you're God's best for me. That's that iron sharpening iron type of thing. And we don't like it, but God says, it's just for you. I love you so much. This is a trial just for you. It's called your spouse. And, and we have to live our lives like that. And God says, persevere in it, because if you do, you will be refined in the fire when you get to the end. You know, marriage, it can be mostly sweetness and light. But every once in a while, it can be darkness and threatening storms that are there. And so God says, no matter what the case, stick with it. If you stick with it and you do it right, by the time you get to the end, you become inseparable. The love has just grown and it's all good because of the acceptance that is there. And this is all under the banner, so to speak, of love. And then he tells us, fifthly, do not love money. So he tells us what to love in four cases. Then he says, do not love money. Verse 5 says, keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have because God has said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. Have you ever seen, there are these things called magazines. And these magazines have pictures in them. And sometimes these pictures, these advertisements that are there, like for insurance companies, you can insure your whole home. And I remember seeing one several years ago of everything you could possibly imagine, a toy that anybody could ever have is lined up in front of the house. There was a boat, there was a jet ski, there were water skis, there were snow skis, there were tennis rackets, golf clubs. I mean, everything you could possibly think of was up in front of this house. And the ad was, insure with us. You're in good hands with whoever it was. You know, and, and that idea that you could have all of that. And so we work hard to get all that stuff. But what does that stuff do? It enslaves us because you got to maintain it. You got to take care of it. If that's why as you get older, I don't care about that. You want to throw away half the stuff that you have. You don't want the clutter. Now, some people have a problem with wanting clutter, but most people say, I don't want that stuff. The fewer vehicles I have, the less headache I have. The fewer things we have, the more freedom we have. The more things we have, the more we're tied to them. You know, like if you have the jet ski and the boat, and all of that is wonderful. You go out on the Lake Powell or wherever you're going, Havasu, and you you get out there, you have a wonderful time, then you bring it home, and you got to clean it, and you got to store it, and you got to fix the engine. I mean, just, it goes on and on and on. If you own a house, what do you got to do? I got to paint it. I got to fix it. I got to do the plumbing. I got to, you name it. It's there, and it occupies our time. And so if we're working for this money to have the stuff, The stuff enslaves us and we become less happy when at the beginning we thought, if I just have this, it'll make me happy. And it doesn't. It doesn't satisfy. What are you going to get when you get to heaven? Everything. You you don't have to have it here, but when you get to heaven, it's that deferred gratification. Just put it off to heaven. Bless others with stuff rather than yourself so much. Not that you can't bless yourself. You can. But this idea of keeping others in mind and do not set this false God up of the love of money. First Timothy 6.10 says, For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. If you remember in the parables of Matthew chapter 13, one of the things, the cares of this life and the pursuit of riches, keep people from being saved. That's what they're after. Jesus said it is harder for a rich man to fit through an or, Camel to fit through an eye of a needle than for a rich man to get into heaven, not for a rich man to fit through an eye of a needle. It's, it's just the opposite. And so what he's saying, it's impossible for the rich man if he's relying on his riches to get into heaven. It won't happen. And so there are all kinds of pitfalls with money. Money is not bad. It's the love of money that is bad. Wanting to have it, build it up, make this mountain, and just have this huge amount of wealth, it can be a snare to those who may be seeking salvation. Uh, the person 
you might know this guy, Socrates. He who is not contented with what he has would not be contented with what he would like to have. So it never ends that contentment going on. We're also supposed to have a love for our leaders. In verse 6 it says, So we say with confidence, The Lord is my helper, I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? Remember your leaders, verse 7, who spoke the word of God to you, consider the outcome of their way of life, and imitate their faith. And so at this particular time, their leaders would have gone all the way back to Abraham and those people of faith. But it also means the leaders that they have there currently. Now, the leaders that guided me, I love those men and women. I would do anything for them. They sacrificed their time for me. And they hold a special place in my heart. And if they were ever in need whatsoever, I would be the first one there. Because I owe them my very discipleship, my very salvation, that type of thing. And so we're to do that, honor those who are above us in whatever capacity. And, And don't be complaining all the time. Could you imagine if you were put in a position of leadership, not because you pursued it, because somebody said, you're going to do this. You're going to head up this particular portion of this business, or you're going to head up this particular portion of the church, and you're going to do it. So you're appointed to that. God does that in the church. He appoints us in the church, right? And then if somebody that he appoints us, any one of us who is a leader to be over, and that person is just a thorn in your flesh, they're constantly just complaining. Would you stop already? I love you. Would you stop? You just kind of go back and forth and you become schizophrenic. You, you want things to just be right and you want to love them. And, but sometimes the leader's bad too. He's tainted and so, or she's tainted. And so what are you going to do? It's just love. The idea of this chapter is love those inside the church. Love those outside the church. Love those who are your enemies, those who are in prison. Just love everybody. Consider others better than yourself. And so when it comes to loving your leaders, there's some leaders, they are not perfect. Right, Patty? Amen? And, and so the ones who aren't perfect, you just have a lot of patience with them. And then the ones who are perfect, that's only Jesus Christ. It's not a problem to be submitted to him, right? So every other leader that is on the face of the earth is going to be imperfect. And he says here, love those who are leaders above you. And if you do, it will go well for you. Can you imagine a leader always being poked and prodded? What's he eventually going to do? It's going to lash out eventually because they're a flesh, right? And if somebody's in the church going, I'm going to get them to lash out, watch this. <laughs> if you're doing something like that, just, just go. Just leave. You know, you, you don't want to do that to anybody. You don't want to be a problem to anybody. So he tells us to love our leaders. Then going on in James chapter 5 with the same subject, brothers, as an example of patience in the face of suffering, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. As you know, we consider blessed those who have persevered. You have heard of Job's perseverance and have seen what the Lord finally brought about. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. So you take somebody like Job, who is an example to us, who is a leader, and you follow that example. And even though he endured great suffering, it benefits us. It has taught us a lesson. And of course, in Second Corinthians chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, it says, when we suffer, when we receive comfort from the Lord, we are able to pass on that same comfort to those who are going through the same trials later on. And I believe that's most of the time why we go through suffering, is God wants us to be able to be comforted in the midst of that suffering and transfer that suffering to others. If we live our lives in such a way where we avoid all suffering, you would have to devoid yourself of all friends, all interaction with people. And then, you know, if you said, well, I'm just on the Internet, I don't like to talk to people, well, eventually your computer's going to break down and you're going to have to deal with the cable guy that comes out. You're going to have to interact with him. You cannot be autonomous. God wants us to be interacting with people. We're not supposed to be sequestered. We're supposed to be in the middle of the world, ministering to the world and in the church, ministering to the church. And that's what the encouragement is here. Based on what? The entire history of the Jews, everything that they have gone for or gone through. And that is our encouragement as well this morning. Verse eight says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He does not change as we do in society, in our 
morals and our ethics. Do not be carried away by all kinds of strange doctrines. It is good for our hearts to be strengthened by grace, not by ceremonial foods, which are of no value to those who eat them. So first, there are strange doctrines. And there are churches, they get into these stupid and foolish arguments over strange doctrines. Scripture, let me digress a little bit. I have an illustration. I talked to somebody a week and a half ago. And it was concerning a death and grief and suffering. And they said, there's this new program out there in the church. I think she said, and I haven't read the program, but I think she said it was called Life Skills. Now, I'm going to go check it out. But if it's anything what was being communicated to me, it was something that was in addition to the Bible. It's not biblical, but Christians are using it in churches. What? Use the Bible. The Bible is all we need. What? You don't need something in addition to that? No. You don't need anything in addition to the scriptures. Now, if you have a book that points you to the scriptures, wonderful. That is just great. But to get into the psychological aspects of how you're supposed to act, the Bible tells us already, what's the problem in the world? Sin. What do we have? Sin. What are we? Sinners. What do we have to do? Change. If we change, what will happen? Blessings. I mean, it's so simple, it's so concise. But they're talking about doing this digression and going back how you were hurt as a child. And I thought to myself, what happened to Philippians? Forgetting what is behind and reaching forth unto those things which are before me, I press towards the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. Whatever happened to that? Forget about that. When you look at your past, I, I did this the other day. I started to review all my mistakes in ministry. Oh, it's miserable. I was absolutely miserable. Then that verse came to mind. Forget what is behind you. Oh, thank you, Lord. I can move on from there. And after you've been in ministry, you know, 26 years in my case, others 40, 50 years, lots of mistakes are going to be made. And if you dwell on that stuff, it does not edify your spirit. It just sends you down in the doldrums. The doldrums are that area around the equator where the air swirls and there's no movement for a sailboat. Guys would get stuck in their sailboats at the equator for months because there'd be no wind. You get stuck in the doldrums. You're not moving. You're not going forward at all. So God says, forget what is behind you. Don't get into those false doctrines. Don't think that there's something else that'll make you more excited as you serve Christ. Most of your serving of Christ, 95% is perspiration. 5% is inspiration. Some would say 99% is perspiration. 1% is inspiration. It doesn't matter. Christ just says, do it anyway. doesn't matter how much you're inspired. And when you're inspired, go forward. If you're not inspired, well, muddle through it. Like being a parent. What happens if you're not inspired to be a parent? Do you just quit? No. You muddle through it. You go, okay, I'm going to do this. You might grit your teeth a little bit, but you make it through. And so that's the exhortation here. Stay away from this idea of strange doctrines. Specifically, they're dealing with diet. Have you ever met a militant vegan? <laughs> what are you doing eating that flesh? Uh, it tastes good. Barbecued chicken, the skin. Oh, I love the skin, the flesh on the barbecue. Baby back ribs. Oh. Filet mignon, tri-tip on the oh, In-N-Out burger, you know, something like that. All that beef and all that meat, and it is just great. But you get this militant vegan, you're eating something like that and go, ah, you know, they come up and they, they, oh, don't eat that stuff. You'll be so much more healthy. And I don't care. Why would I want to extend my life anyhow? You know, I get a new body when I get up there. That's usually my argument. But there's some people that are Christians that say, you should not be eating that stuff. It's bad for you. And therefore, you're not glorifying God with your body. What you put in your body is going to make you a disgrace to the faith. So you better be eating everything that's only vegan, only organic, and make sure it's 100% not touched by pesticides. If you do that, you'll be more sanctified. Oh, you know, and they'll have that kind of attitude with you. It's like... No, 
God said you can eat whatever you want to. If you like shrimp, if you like fish, if you like cows, whatever you like. If you like rabbit, go ahead, just have your fill. But some people in the church think it's more holier than thou if you live by this particular diet. And he's saying, don't do it. Don't let people judge you. Verse 16 of chapter Two of Colossians. Therefore, do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink, or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath day. These are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. I once told, I've mentioned this story before, I once told another local pastor here in Lakeside that I had to go work on Sunday. And he turns to me and he goes, that's one of the greatest sins that pastors commit is they go and they work on the Sabbath. They should not be working on the Sabbath. you know that? I hope you can find the time not to work on the Sabbath. And you just take your day of rest. And, of course, blaring in my mind is Colossians chapter 2, verse 16. Don't listen to somebody who says a particular day is supposed to be a Sabbath. We are in our rest with Jesus Christ. That is a false doctrine. That is out there. That is a strange doctrine. So we're supposed to avoid those doctrines. It's good to have a rest. Don't, please don't mistake me. And don't work so that you can get rich. Just wear yourself out. Bible says don't do that. But if you have to work, you go work. You go do that. If you want to eat something and you're hungry and you like cockroaches, go ahead. Eat cockroaches. They can be nutritious. Verse 10. We have an altar from which those who minister at the tabernacle have no right to eat. The high priest carries the blood of animals into the most holy place as a sin offering. But the bodies are burned outside the camp. And so Jesus also suffered outside the city gate to make the people holy through his own blood. Let us then go to him outside the camp, bearing the disgrace he bore. In other words, if we suffer because of Christ, if we are being disgraced and disrespected because we follow Jesus Christ, he says, bear up under it. Jesus was cast outside of the city, just like the bull is sacrificed outside the camp of the people because it's considered unclean. It would be a a sin offering, that type of thing. And don't worry about it. Just bear up under it. Verse 14 says, for here we do not have an enduring city, but we are looking for the city that is to come. Repeatedly in the New Testament, it is fix your eyes on Jesus. Look forward. What is coming in the future? Where are we going to go after we die? What is waiting for us up there? Are we going to have glory and riches or are we going to be in turmoil and under damnation? Where are we going? And if we know we're going to heaven, the better place, forsake everything here and i mean that not so much in a literal sense change we need to change our focus if we're so worried about what is here and what's going on here not that we don't have to work and take care of our families we do all of that that goes without saying but our main focus is heaven keep heaven in your sights That's where we're going. That's why we do what we do. That's why we build our relationships. That's why we glorify Jesus Christ, because we want as many people as we can possibly muster to go with us. Going on with this. And do not forget to do good and to share with others, for with such sacrifices God is pleased. Obey your leaders and submit to their authority. They keep watch over you as men who must give an account. Obey them so that their work will be a joy, not a burden. For that would be of no advantage to you. And it's this idea for leaders as well. Even though people in the church in this particular case, they should be submitting to their leaders, but the leaders should never lord it over the people inside the church. Imagine if the church was set up like a military base. Oh, yeah. Imagine that if you had a drill sergeant and the drill sergeant was the leader and you know how drill sergeants talk to people in the barracks, right? All the privates and corporals. It's like humiliation. Break the person down, build them up in the military, and set them forward. And it's regimented, and it's good for war, and it's all that. But it's probably not so good for a relationship. And if a pastor is acting like that, get out. Just quit. Don't interact with the people like that jesus gave us an example how we are supposed to die anybody who is a leader is supposed to die for the sake of others to their own wants and cares needs and desires and follow the example of jesus who gave his life as a ransom verse 18 says pray for us we 
we are sure that we have a clear conscience and desire to live honorably in every way. I particularly urge you to pray so that I may be restored to you soon. And here's the benediction, the blessing. May the God of peace, who through the blood of eternal covenant brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, equip you with everything good for doing his will. And may he work in us what is pleasing to him through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. This prayer is that God would work in us. The only drawback to this is us if we say no. If we say, I will not go forward. I will not be that disciple. I will not keep heaven in focus. I'm going to keep this earth in focus. That's the only thing that prevents Jesus from working in us to carry out his will. Verse 22, brothers, I urge you to bear with my word of exhortation, for I have written you only a short letter. I want you to know that our brother Timothy has been released. If he arrives soon, I will come with him to see you. Greet all your leaders and all God's people. Those from Italy send you their greeting. Grace be with you all. And so this is the end of the book of Hebrews. The author was encouraging the Hebrews, and he said, bear with my word of exhortation. Why would he say bear? He would say bear with it because it can be a bear to follow the exhortation that is there. What do you mean I have to love others? But they were so mean to me. What do you mean I have to submit to my leaders? You know, they're not very likable. You know, help me, Jesus, to to do that inside the church. All of these exhortations that are there requires us to consider others better than ourselves. Loving requires you to die to yourselves. Imagine the husband that never told his wife he loved her. Imagine the husband that never did anything for his wife. Oh, you got weeds out there? Go pull them yourself. Oh, toilet needs to be unclogged? Go do it yourself. Oh, you want me to lift that heavy box? Go do it yourself. Hire somebody. You want to clean the windows? Go do it yourself. You want your car fixed? Go have somebody else do it. You come up with the money too. Imagine that. Something like that? Or what about the wife? I don't love you. I don't like you. And get out of my sight. You know, something like that. What if the wife doesn't love the husband like that? It's going to be miserable. But God wants us to die to ourselves. If we do this, if we follow this exhortation in the book of Hebrews, if we stay the course, if we keep our eyes on heaven, we'll be blessed. Now, see, I give you these words now. But when we get to heaven, please don't be the one who says, Pastor Bill said it and I didn't do it. Because the blessing will be so huge for you. And it's not that I'm the final authority. Others have taught me. It's in the word. I'm just giving it to you. You can do this. You can expand your horizons with God. It will be a wild ride for you. He will take you to new horizons that you never thought possible. You will be so blessed by the end of your life, you won't be able to contain it. Your entry into heaven, as soon as you leave your body, you will be leaping into the gates of heaven because you'll be so thrilled that you followed God's counsel in this. My prayer for you is that you can die to yourself, that, that we can all do it, even me, that we, we follow the precepts of Jesus Christ. We don't get involved in strange doctrine. We stay the course. We keep him up on the pinnacle of our faith. He is the author and perfecter of everything that is good. And may he work that good in us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the book of Hebrews. We ask that we would be able, in a loving fashion, to be submissive to you and all of us, Lord, to be submissive to one another, that we seek the good of those who are around us, that we are willing to sacrifice, that we are willing to be little Christ's, Christians, Father, may you convict us in a way that only you can, that is loving, that is used for direction. May you encourage and bless us as we submit to your will. And Father, may we ultimately be a blessing not only to you, but to all who we come in contact with. In Jesus' name, and everyone sin.